Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. And uh, as we turn there, I would remind you that we are at the point in Nehemiah where they're rebuilding the wall. They're actually getting the wall rebuilt, and they're, they're moving pretty well through it. They're starting to rebuild. The people are gathered together, and everybody's got a part, and everybody's playing a part. Last week, we talked about how there's a perfumer working right next to uh, a goldsmith, and there's a construction guy next to this, these, these priests, and there's all kinds of people, all types of people, all laboring for the purpose of building the kingdom of God. So as we come to chapter 4, verses 1 through 14, now we start to see the opposition begin to fight with the people of God. So let's read chapter 4, verses 1 through 14 together. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, he je- and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they receive stones? Will they revive stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? And Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, Yes, and what they're building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God. For we are despised. Turn back their taunts on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in the land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall and all the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is falling, is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And the enemy and our enemies said, They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, You must return to us. So, in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in the open places, I stationed people by their clans with their swords and their spears and their bows, and I looked and, I, and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, 
and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And may God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Doesn't that send chills down your spine at last? Fight. Oh, anyway, let's let's dive right into this this morning. Uh, Sanballat. Sanballat is the opposition. So this is the outline. You can follow pretty easily. The opposition rises in verses 1 through 3. The response of God's people in verses 4 through 6. And then the enemies advance in verses 7 through 14. Uh, the enemies advance and God's people's respite, uh, response in fighting. Uh, so that's what we have here as our basic outline, and you can follow along pretty easily. So let's talk first about the opposition rising here in verses 1 through 3. When Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged and jeered at the Jews. Remember that Sanballat is the governor of Samaria. He's the governor of where the northern kingdom was. So he's been governor there, and there has been no governor, really no real governor, in Jerusalem and Judea. So the southern kingdom of Judah, which is where, if you're familiar with the exilic period and pre-exilic period, the southern kingdom of Judah was the faithful uh, Judah and Levite tribes. The northern kingdom was the other ten, and they uh, set up high places everywhere, and they went into exile first. So the Assyrians come and take them into exile. And then Judah lasts for a little bit longer. And then the Babylonians come and take them into exile. All prophesied by Jeremiah, which is how Ezra and Nehemiah starts. Talking about the prophecy that Jeremiah said would come to pass. And so remember last week we talked about how all this rebuilding is in the framework of God has said this was going to happen. That he was going to rebuild this city and this place and this way. And so all of this has this prophetic backdrop. And so the people who are building have that in their mind as they're building. And the northern kingdom governor is this non-Jew named Sanballat. And he has been reigning in this area, kind of free reign for a long time. He has all the freedom to do what he wants. See what I'm getting at? He has all the freedom to do what he wants and nobody else can tell him what not to do. And there's nobody else who's stronger than him in the area. So he's kind of the top dog. And he sees these Jews come back to Jerusalem and start rebuilding the city. And it makes him nervous. Makes him uncomfortable. And we talked last week about how that works. But we see Sanballat here burns with anger. That's what it says there. He was, he was angry. That probably would be better understood he was furious because this is an internal anger. It shows up again later on in verse 7. He's, he's got this internal burning anger. Like it's, it's at his heart. And he's mad. And so he gets angry and it's this fury that kind of builds in him. And then he becomes confused or vexed. And that's what it says here. He became greatly enraged. That, that wording being anger that is vexed. Anger that is confused. Like irrationally mad. Irrationally mad. Anybody who has had a child throw a fit over a balloon, this is it. That's what happens here. He loses something that he never really had, and now he's furious in, in his heart, and he becomes kind of vexed and angry. You know, the, 
the tight jaw people that you talk to, you know, are just mad about something and you don't know what it is. And they do, they do this, you know, the tight jaw. I can't even do it. The tight jaw thing where you're talking to them and you know that something's wrong. That's what's happening to Sam Ballard every time he talks to somebody. Just this, something is wrong, you know. And so he's got that going on. And then here, his third step is he mocks or jeers at the Jews. And this is the progression of unrighteous anger. This is the progression of unrighteous anger. We can see this here, that this is when anger is unrighteous. It burns inside. It does not understand why it burns inside. It burns inside. It's anger, and it it burns. And so they begin to outwardly manifest that in this confused anger and fit-throwing They get mad, and that begins to pour out of them, because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And Sanballat begins to jeer at people. This is the progression of unrighteous anger in everyone. There's a burning, then there's a confusion, then there's a pouring out in mocking and jeering of the people of God. A mocking of the people of God. We should never behave this way. This should never characterize a Christian. This should never characterize the people of God. In fact, we have a statement here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, all the way through 32. It says, therefore, having put away falsehood, in other words, embracing the truth, let let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So just take note. He says, having put away falsehood, speak the truth. You tell the truth. And then the very next thing that follows, speak the truth, is this great line. Be angry and do not sin. Because if you are speaking the truth and people are speaking the truth to you, occasionally you're going to get angry. And it'll be internal. That's a natural response. The difference between unrighteous anger and righteous anger is not that you got angry. It's not that you didn't get angry. The difference is that When that anger strikes a righteous man who has been covered in the blood of Jesus, a righteous woman who has been covered in the blood of Jesus, their response to that anger is one of humility and love towards others and not fury, not uncontrolled fury and confusion. God is not the author of confusion. So... When you are angry, do not sin. Do not let the sun go. And then there's these these instructions kind of here to help you deal with anger. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Unrighteous anger does those two things. It ignores it. It it holds it back. It bottles it up. It gives opportunity to the devil by not speaking the truth, by not listening to the truth, by not letting things go, letting things out, and in humility, trusting that the Lord is going to take care of them. Let, no, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Note that the emphasis here is on sharing with others, on building the community, on working with other people. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear, are you, are you following? In our anger, this is our response. 
love, tenderness, not to steal other people's things, not, but to be righteous and to build up the body. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Unrighteous anger does what Sanballat did. Righteous anger does this. Righteousness draws us to humility and love and the dissipation of anger. And anger fades in the face of love, kindness, and tenderness towards others. That's beautiful. It's not at all what Sanballat did. And I wanted to pause just to say we do not want to be Sanballat in the story. We do not want to be Tobiah. We do not want to be the Ammonites, the Adonites. We don't want to be any of these. None of the ites. We want to be the people of God, and this is how the people of God respond. So opposition rises, Sanballat, and then note what Sanballat does. He goes to gather and add intimidation. Look at verse 2. And he sat in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria. Now just pause there. If you're reading the ESV, it says the army of Samaria. That really probably ought to read something more like the nobility of Samaria or the, uh, the rulers of Samaria. It's not specifically the word ruler, but it is a word that indicates some sort of open nobility or kind of uh, royalty with power. The emphasis is on the strength of these people. These are people of prestige and power. And I just wanted to point that out to you because what Sam Ballad is doing is gathering all the good-looking, amazing leaders. He's grabbing all the good-looking leaders, the nobility, the rich people. Some translations translate it rich men. These are the rich rulers of the area, the the nobility, the people who, they may not be in charge of an area, but you know they're in charge. You know what I mean? They might not be running things, but they're running things. These are these guys. He gathers the good-looking people together. He gathers his brothers and the good-looking leaders, the good-looking nobles. And he gathers them together and he sits with them. The image that you should be in your brain is a bunch of rich people at a cocktail party. That's what should be going on in your brain. That's what Sam Ballot's done. He's gathered everybody together for this political gathering. He is smooth. He looks, he's wearing a nice suit, probably carrying some sort of very fancy drink, maybe a cigar. And he's talking to all of his buddies in the room. And they are all equally obnoxiously dressed and perfectly composed. And they look good. These are the good looking people. Contrast that with the Jews who do not look good. They look tired. They smell different, except for the perfumer's wall. They are messy. The Jews even dress differently than everybody in the area. They look weird. They're not nobility. They're not wealthy. As Paul reminds us, as such were some of you, you were not wealthy or wise in the world or rich by worldly standards, but you were given grace in Jesus Christ. The people of God are not marked by their own nobility. They're marked by the nobility of God himself. 
We aren't impressive because we look good. Our God is impressive. Period. You, you and I were not impressive. God is the one that's impressive. Find me a broken man that is ugly and old who has walked with the Lord for a long period of time and I will show you the way to live like Christ. Find an old, ugly saint who has been battle-hardened and beaten and I will show you the way of Christ in him. That is beautiful. So, we see Sambalek gathers his brothers, the rich men and nobles, and then he attacks the motive and ethic and quality of their work. He says, what are these Jews doing, these pathetic Jews? That's the, a better, uh, probably a good way to put it. Feeble Jews or pathetic Jews. Will, will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive stones out of the heaps of rubble? Burn stones at that. So they're restoring it for themselves. He attacks their motive. He says they're restoring this for themselves. They're not. They're restoring it for the God Almighty, the Lord of hosts, the King of all glory, the Lord over the entire earth. They're restoring it for Him, for His glory, but they're going, they're restoring this for themselves. They're just trying to make their own way in the world. And then second, that He attacks their ethic. They're going to build out of stones that have been burned. They're dragging up stones from the rubble. This is, this is not good. And then the quality of their work. It's garbage. They're not even doing a good job building this wall. And then He's surrounded by others. Now, I want to just point out, often the adversary questions the quality of your work. And the accusations go something like this. First, you're sinful. Which, you, the good Christian response, you should know. Indeed, I am, but God has redeemed me and cleaned me, and Jesus is not sinful, and I'm judged on His righteousness. Which is awesome. So, we see that, and we see... First, you're sinful. The second act accusation that, in my experience, the adversary has given to me is, you're not doing it right. That's the other one. You're not doing this right. Sam Bellet does the same thing. They're not building right. You're not doing this right. Maybe. I'll ask the Lord. He'll either send some brother to help me, a fellow laborer who will help me, or he will correct me. You're not doing it right. Okay. Third, you don't have the right people, tools, or gifts. You're building out of rubble and rock. To that, we can cheer. Because you know what the Lord doesn't need? Our tools, people, or gifts. He can build with anything. And He can take you, and He can take me, and He can make something great in the kingdom. And He can take your children with all their issues. And he makes something great for the kingdom. And he can take the older men and women and he can take them and he can build the kingdom. And he can take a goofy, artsy-fartsy, weirdo poet and do something great in the kingdom. In case you didn't miss it, that was me. And he can, he can take people who have no gifts at all and build them up. And you know what? It seems like that's what he tends to do. The most talented, beautiful people are Sanballat and his buddies sitting off in the corner. The ones God uses are the goldsmiths and perfumers. That one guy's daughters are with him. They're just working. None of them are special. But their God is special. And because they know him, 
they become valuable in the kingdom of God and in the work of God. And their names are recorded in history. Jesus is my righteousness. I am obeying him. He gave me these people and these gifts to work. So, we have the, we have the uh, opposition rising there in verse 3. When God, when the enemy of God mocks, often other people join. You've got Samballot. Then you've got Samballot plus his friends. And then you've got Samballot and Tobiah. And Tobiah, the Ammonite, remember, he's like a, kind of a half-Jew. He's from the Tobiah line. And he was the one, he was of the line earlier in Ezra that tried to claim that they could be priests, but he didn't have their line, didn't have the ability to prove it. So there might be some bitterness that has welled up in him over time, and he's got some kind of I'm going to be in charge anyway attitude, and that's, that's Tobiah. So he's inside the camp of Israel is the point. He, is, he, has come, he and his family came back with Israel. They are inside the camp of Israel. Sambalat is outside the camp of Israel, and everybody knows it. So how often, how often I have seen words steal a heart from the work of the church. Look at what Tobiah said. He says, they are building, and if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. And I tell you, I have often seen words like this steal from the work of the church. Words that are disparaging and discouraging. Words that critique the work that is being done without offering any help. Words that are critical without aid. I have seen words tear down the work of many churches. How many Demases there are in this world who forsake the work of God for the sake, for the sake of the love of the world. Remember Demas in 2 Timothy, God, Paul says that he has left us for the cares of the world have overtaken him. Such a gracious thing for Paul to say. He doesn't demonize Demas. He doesn't throw him under the bus. He says the cares of the world have overtaken him. Deem how often we have seen people come to church, labor in the ministry, and then be torn down by words or abandon the work like Demas. We have seen this. How many Alexanders and Hymenaeuses who did great harm to the ministry have there been who seemed like they were part of things who then tore down the work. How painful it is to say with the Apostle John, they went out from us to prove that they were never of us. How painful that is to say. They went out from us that it would be proved that they're not of us. It's not a beautiful thing. It's a painful statement. And here we have in Tobiah that very picture. A person who is critical and who is disparaging to the people of God. So what do we do? What is our response to this? And this is the second section we come to. The response of the people of God in verses 4 through 6. Nehemiah, note, does not address Samballot and Tobiah in this text. He turns directly to the Lord which is the pattern that we have seen him do already. He turns directly to the Lord. He says here, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own head and give them up to be plundered in the land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked 
you to anger in the presence of the builders. Verse 6. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. The response of the people of God is first and foremost to turn to God. To turn to the Father and to lay our prayers before Him. This is the consistent example of Isaiah, this is the consistent example of Nehemiah. Nehemiah did this earlier. Remember, he had it on his heart to do this. And what does he do? He prays for four months. And then when he comes before the king, the king asks him, and he prays in the moment in front of the king. This is a praying man who is praying constantly for God to move. So he prays and he works and he labors. The first response of the children of God is to pray. Let's just look at some passages here to back this up in first peter chapter 5 verse 7 it says cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you in philippians 4 verse 6 fret not about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving in your heart let your requests be made known to god so you are to pray constantly as these two have said as we mentioned earlier in isaiah chapter 62 verses 6 and 7 he says the lord says of the people On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance. You who call the Lord to remember. That's what that means. You who put the Lord in remembrance. Who call the Lord to remember. Take no rest. And give Him no rest. Until He establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. For us, that means we pray until heaven comes down. We pray until Revelation 21. We labor in prayer that the Lord would move until it's over. You have a deep prayer need. Let's labor. Let's pray. I love the fact that we are engaging in worldwide warfare when we pray. We are engaging in something beyond what we could possibly do with our own hands. We are changing the world when we pray. And indeed, we labor in prayer. We take the work of prayer very seriously. We turn to God first. We pray. Prayer should be first. It should be constant. And it should be always. Prayer should be first. It should be constant. And it should be always. So let's look just briefly at the content of Nehemiah's prayer. Look at this prayer. It is, it is a harsh prayer. It's almost a comically harsh prayer. Let's look at it together. He says, Hear our God, for we are despised. That's something that he knew about them when they were coming. They despise us. We're despised. He says, Turn back their taunt on their own heads, and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Take note of that, what he says there, in a land where they are captives. He is praying that they would experience the same thing Israel did. That their taunt, their wickedness would be brought on their own head. Because that's what happened to us. That's what he's saying. That's what happened to us when we were rebellious to God back in the time of Jeremiah. Same language is used in passages. That Israel, their taunts were brought back on their own head. That their mocking of God was brought back on their own head. And they were despised among the the nations. 
and they're taken out and they're they're gone. So the same thing is done there. He says we have we have uh, taunt back on their own heads, turn it back on their own, give it up, give them up to be plundered, plundered in a land where they are captives. We went into captivity, Lord. Do the same thing to them. Do the same thing to them. We went into captivity. Do the same thing to them. And then he says, do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. This is a very intense prayer. He says, first, let them become as we are. Maybe then they'll know how this feels. And then he says, don't forgive them. That is harsh. Don't forgive their sins. And there's a lot to be said about imprecatory psalms and imprecatory prayers where we call down the judgment of God on peoples, nations, individuals. There's a lot to be said about that. There's a lot to be said about whether or not Christians can or should pray that way, whether or not that's allowed. Uh, Really, allowed is not the word. Whether or not that's profitable. Remember, Scripture Paul, all things are permissible, not all things are profitable, not all things are good. Christians don't ask if things are permissible, we ask if they're good. Because that's a step beyond. We ask if they're good. To him who sees what is good and does not do it to him, it is sin. To him who sees what is good and does not do it to him, it is sin. James. Right? We ask what is good, where is the good way, and we walk in it. We ask with Jeremiah, look back at the ancient paths, See which way the road leads. See which way God has directed your path. Ask, where is the good way that we may walk in it? Then you will hear a voice from behind you saying to the left or right, and you will not turn. This is the way. Walk in it. We ask the Lord to guide us into good things, not just allowable things. Not just permissive things, but good things. We seek what is good, not only what is allowed or not allowed. Um, so, Nehemiah prays that that they would be treated like Israel. And then he prays that they would not be forgiven. There's a couple places in the Psalms where we see this. Psalm 67, I mean 69, verse 27 through 28 is one. Add to them the punishment upon punishment that they may have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out from the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. And then again in Jeremiah 18, 23, Yet you, O Lord, know all their plotting to kill me. Forgive not their iniquity, nor blot their sin from your sight. Let them be overthrown before you deal with them in the time of your anger. That's like telling God, don't calm down. Don't calm down. Just do it now. I know you're mad now. Do it now. That's what Jeremiah is calling them to do. Now, Jesus has an instruction to those under the law in Matthew chapter 5 when he's expounding on the law of God. In Matthew chapter 5, this is the Sermon on the Mount, as we all know. Um, And he's expounding, what he's doing here is he's expounding to the people who are under the law on what the law says. The intent of the purpose, the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is that you would hear it and go, I need Jesus because there's no way I could save myself by my own righteousness. That's the intent of the Sermon on the Mount. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verse 43 and 44, he says, You have heard it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We have a direct instruction to pray for those who persecute us. To love our enemies. Again, 
this was the heart of God to everyone. This was the heart of God to everyone. That you should pray for those who persecute you. So, we can see the heart of God is love, not hate. Leviticus 19, verse 18 says, Love your neighbor as yourself. And if you remember the, the Jewish lawyer who was trying to get out of it, love your neighbor as you would yourself, he goes, Ah, who's my neighbor? Which is exactly what the people of God do always. You will be known by your love for one another. And then you'll hear some people say, well, I mean, one another, that's just the brothers. No. You will be known by your love for one another because God is a God of love. We love others because he first loved us. Your love is not restricted to the body of Christ. Indeed, God himself loves the whole world. He says so. And how does he love the whole world? By sending Jesus. John chapter 3, verse 16, the one you memorized as a kid. Now the problem is that people are sinful. They reject God altogether. And we are wicked. We are wicked. So we require the Lord to move in our hearts to change us. And he does. And all those who believe, trust in him, get salvation. And we get the love of Jesus Christ in a different way than the rest of the world. But the very revelation of Jesus Christ is an act of love to everyone. God revealing himself is an act of love. We love because he first loved us. Indeed, God is love. And in him there is no hate. And we do not hate but love when those are, when those are stated as opposites. Sometimes... They're not opposite. So, Nehemiah prays this very constricted prayer, and I'm not so certain that we can pray in precatory psalms or that we can pray in precatory prayers, but I also don't fault Nehemiah for doing it, and you shouldn't either, because he's one of the people of God, and this is very honest. The book of the Bible is a very honest book. The Scripture is a very honest book, and the people who are in it make honest statements. And I'm not going to answer whether or not you're allowed to pray this, but I might impose on you the question, does Jesus want you to pray these things? Does Jesus want me to pray these things? Are they profitable for me to pray these things? Maybe you have some way of answering yes. I don't know. I don't know how I can answer yes to that. But if you can, please feel free to argue with me all you want at lunch. I am game for that kind of discussion. And we can, we can go back and forth. You see, we pray as Christians with an understanding of sovereignty and grace. Your heart will be better and more full and more encouraged if you will pray this way. Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Into your hands, Lord, or, or in your hands, I commit my spirit, my life, my work. And then for each other, remember our Lord on the cross models provision. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. If we can pray the way Jesus did when he was being persecuted and the sin of the world was laid on his shoulders, 
If we could pray that way, how much stronger will our hearts be? How much more joy will we have? How much more full will our lives be when we can pray for others in the midst of absolute hatred being poured on us? How much greater? Oh, read the testimony of martyrs and saints. We have some on the back table. You can get them. One of my favorites back there is Tortured for Christ by Richard Firmbrand. You read that book and you will see a man who can pray for his enemies like nobody. A man who was beaten every day for 13 years in communist prison while he was preaching. He had a deal with the guards, he said. Every day they would beat him for preaching and tell him to stop. And every day he would preach. And he said, so you see, brothers, we have a deal. I get to do my preaching, and they get to have their beating. We both win. That's the kind of person I want to be. That's the kind of person, I, one who prays that way for the guards and for the people who are beating me. One who preaches the gospel in the face of such, such torture. That's how I want to be. That's how I want to be, and that's how you should want to be. So we pray in line with our master. Not my will, but yours to be done. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Into your hands I commit my spirit. I thirst. Very honest prayer. He's thirsty. There's a whole lot more to say about that, but I've got to stop myself or I'm going to go for hours. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Oh, so then they do these things. They turn to God first. The content of Nehemiah's prayer there as we read it, and then... They focus on the work there in verse 6. So they got to work. They built the wall. That's beautiful, isn't it? D.L. Moody says it this way. He says, let the dogs bark and the gospel train keep moving. Dogs bark at trains. Trains go down the road. Dogs can't stop trains. They can't hurt trains. The gospel is a train. And it is going. It is moving. Let the dogs bark. There's no reason to yell at the dogs. Just keep going. You're going to have people who say things negatively about you in your life and your following of Christ. You're going to have people who misunderstand and misconstrue what you believe. You're going to have people who are going to press against you and bark at you and tell you that what you're doing is wrong. Obey the Lord. Follow hard after Him. Love Scripture and obey. Let the gospel train keep going and the dogs bark. Sometimes those dogs look really polished, like Sanballat and his buddies. Sometimes those dogs look like Christian commentators. Beware of any commentator who makes a living critiquing Christians. Beware of any commentator who makes a living critiquing Christians. I'm not saying they're all bad. I'm not saying you can't learn from them. I'm not saying that we don't have to investigate our own church. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is be careful when somebody is marked as critical of the Christian community only. When they are marked that way and they make their living that way. Just be careful. Because they look a lot like Sam Ballot and his buddies. They look really nice. Sometimes people come from the inside like Tobiah and they look a lot like him. Your answer to them should be to keep working. Keep building the 
kingdom of God, keep building the temple, keep loving people the way Jesus did. That should be your answer. Now we come to the third and final section here. The enemies advance and the fight that begins. This is where it gets exciting, right? All the men in the church are like, yeah, he's going to talk about swords because they're there, right? This is where they draw the sword. Spears are here. They've got guards set up. You can imagine this army fighting, people charging the gates, and there being war while people are like putting on bricks as fast as possible. This is really exciting visually in your brain if you're imagining it. And so the enemy advances here, and just watch what they do. But Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, and the breaches were beginning to be closed, and they were very angry, and they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed. No, they prayed. Again, we prayed. We prayed to God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. So, first, anger here, where it says they get angry, is again that fury statement. Sanballat and his buddies get angry again. And that's that fury, that internal anger. So you can just imagine what's happening. They get that internal anger. They move forward. They get irrationally vexed. And then they start to throw a fit and they start to fight. They start to mock and jeer. So that same thing happens. And this time it's internal anger and then conspiring to fight, conspiring to kill, and then confuse. Note note what they say. They say they're going to kill. We read that. They plotted to fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. We prayed to our God for, for protection. Verse 11, it says, And our enemies said, They will not know or see until we come among them and kill them and stop the work. They plot to kill them. So there's anger, then conspiracy, then killing, then confusion. And what they're going to do is they're going to sneak in while the people are working. They're going to walk up to them and they're going to stab them. They're going to kill them. They're going to kill people who are building a wall. That's all these people are doing, they're building a wall in their own temple, in their own city, approved of by the government with tax funds. They're doing all of this, approved of, and this band of noble men who live outside the city, who have ruled this area for years, decide they're going to murder the people on the wall. This is a dark and sinister action, so they can, they respond, they conspire to kill and confuse. And the response of the people of God is prayer and action. Their prayer and action. Look at verse 9. It says, we prayed. Note, we prayed. Not I prayed. It's not Nehemiah going, I prayed to the Lord. It's we prayed. The people of God gather together for the prayers of God. That's why our prayer times on Sunday morning are so valuable because we are uniting our hearts in prayer to the living God and He hears us. And He hears us and He answers our prayers. We pray. We pray. We pray. In James chapter 5, verse 15, it says, Confess to one another. We pray. Pray for one another. We are praying people. Chapter, I'm sorry, I went ahead of my notes. I was supposed to be back here still. In James chapter 5, verse 16, it says, pray for one another. And in verse 9, this is a communal activity of Nehemiah's. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, it says, pray in the spirit 
on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. We are to pray together in the Spirit, together with all kinds of prayers and requests at all occasions. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, what does it urge of us? That men should pray in every circumstance, over everybody, for kings and for everyone. We should pray with hands lifted high. We should pray. Oh, we are to urge prayers for all people. And then, then we set a guard. So they pray and they set a guard. In Judah, verse 10, or verse 9 says, we set a guard as protection against them night and day. In Judah, it was said, there's this poem here uh, where they, they call out to him. And it ends with, you must return to us in the ESV. And the other ones, it says, surely they will attack us again. There's a bit of uncertainty in the Hebrew. I'd love to talk to you about it after lunch, but it's a very odd Hebrew thing. The verse 13, so the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in open places, I stationed people by their clans with their swords, their spears, their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to all the people, the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So how does the church do this? How does the church do this? And we, I passed out a big sheet of one another's last, a couple weeks ago. This is a big sheet of one another's in the Bible. You can find, a, you can find more and more of those if you go just search for one another. There's a sheet back there. I think there's some on the back table still. You can take those. I urge you to take those, read through them, and ask yourself the question, do I do these? Do I do these? Do homework. Do I do these to others? Do, I, do these mark me? Am I marked by these one another? But here's just four of them. One, how does the church do this? One, we confess to one another. We confess to each other our sins and our weaknesses. Nobody in the kingdom of God is perfect. And nobody looks like Sanballat and Tobiah. You don't want to be them. You don't want to look noble. You don't want to be the guy at the cocktail party. Jesus went to the cocktail party for one reason. To tell people to stop doing cocktail parties. To tell people they needed him. To tell people that the pretty people and the ugly people are all at the bottom. And they need Jesus for salvation. And you might be good looking and talented and beautiful. And somebody else might be incredibly messy. I just want to ask, who, who did Jesus get on his team when he walked the earth? I'm, I, I mean, it's going to sound arrogant, but I think of myself as pretty good looking and polished and, you know, I think of myself that way. Jesus didn't get a seminary graduate on his team. When he walked the earth. And the one that ends up being on his team later has to go, all of my seminary training was as filthy rags before the Lord. And I realize it means nothing. You see, the lowly and the wealthy are leveled in the kingdom of God. Because your wealth cannot compare to him. Your polish can't compare to him. Your skill and adeptness can't compare to him. Also, your brokenness can't be too much for him. Your sinfulness can't be too much for him. Your wickedness can't be too much for him. He is the great leveling king of glory who in his leveling all of us exalts 
everyone to the kingdom of God who will trust in him. And the lowest person is brought before the king's throne as a child of God. How wonderful and powerful. And how does the church do this? We confess to one another. We bear one another's burdens. We exhort one another. We serve one another. This is how we do it. This is how we do it. These are the things we do. Exhortation, serving, bearing one another's burdens, confession to one another. This is how we live like Christ and build the walls of the kingdom. And it has to work here. It has to work here because if it doesn't work here, it doesn't work anywhere and we're all doomed to die. It has to work here. Because if Christ doesn't transform the lives of people to make them more like Him and love Him, then what are we doing? But He does. And I can testify to it in my own life. And you can testify to it in your life. If you have trusted in Christ Jesus for salvation, He has saved and changed you. And you know it. And you know it. Now, the story, uh, the story here ends up powerful with this great last call and i just want to bring this to your attention this last call look at verses uh 13 to the end there so in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in the open places i stationed people by their clans or by their families let's use the word families by their families with their swords and their spears and their boats so he takes clans, clansmen, family, tribe leaders, tribe people, and he puts them in different places. The Judas, Judas were here. The Levites were here. The Benjamins were here. The Ephraims were here. They've got these different groups of people who are in different clans. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. God has many battalions in his army. The gospel is being built up everywhere. And God has many battalions in his army. And I like to think of those battalions. It makes it easy for me to understand them as local churches. And there are many clans. Many tribes that God is using to build his kingdom. And that's one of the things that we have failed to understand as Western Christians. That we are working towards the kingdoms and not every battalion looks the exact same. Here, I want to tenaciously drill into us that the work is being done by faithful Christians who may not always look, act, worship the same way we do. They worship the same Jesus. Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord. Don't get me wrong. But they worship maybe with a different style. Maybe they have programs. Maybe they have activities. Those of you who know me know that I hate programs and activities. Like I, I have a legitimate... like. Uh, when that's brought up, like, let's run a program. Uh, you know, 
I have, but I understand that they're good and they can be done well. And so if somebody, if you're hearing me and you're like, well, I wanted to do this program, feel free. Okay, look, feel, I know it's my problem, not our problem. The, there are many battalions in the kingdom and you get moved from time to time from one battalion to another. There's many clans and they're stationed at the gate for the work of ministry. And they have different jobs. Various churches have different things they work on and different things they do because we have an infinitely great and creative God and He uses all kinds of people. There are many battalions in the work of God. That's why we pray for churches constantly. Then, I want to bring out that this is family. The guys are stationed at the walls and they are seeing their families build. They're seeing their families be attacked. A beautiful illustration for us. You don't get to choose your family. When you become a Christian, you are born into the family of God. That means the guy that you don't like who loves Jesus, but you don't necessarily, he rubs you the wrong way, he's your brother. You better get over it. He's honestly. I know people rub people the wrong way. They're your brothers. They're family. You know one thing that you don't get to choose? Family. Your kids did not get to choose to be born into your family. I loved having a discussion with one of my children when they were little about them choosing to be in the family. They were arguing with me about whether or not they got to choose. To which I picked them. They were little, you know, like two. I picked them up and I said, choose to walk. And they couldn't. And it was the funniest thing on the earth. They laughed, giggled. You know, it was a cute moment. It wasn't a corrective one. It was a cute moment. Picked them up. Choose to walk. They couldn't. So this is the way God puts us in families. You're in his family. You have a family in Jesus Christ. Now, there are local bodies that are given various places to work. And then there are the communal body and the people on the ground who are defending may not be of the same family or clan that is working on that part of the wall. And yet they're family. And yet they're family as Christians. We join in the kingdom work of God. And how do we do it? Pray, share the gospel, speak of Jesus and become more holy. And we guard one another through the one another passages. Oh, commit them to memory. Serve one another. Love one another. Pray for one another. Confess to one another. Bear one another's burdens. Exhort one another. Commit these things to memory and ask yourself regularly, am I doing these things? Because Jesus Christ changes the heart of a person and makes us more like Him. And that is our aim.